Welcome to Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rockstar, where I explore the trials and tribulations of being a full-time freelance professional musician in this crazy business we call show. My name is Ivan Funkboy Bodley, and I'll be your host, endeavoring to entertain you with my tales from the road, because sometimes you have to laugh to keep from crying. Am I Famous Yet? is available as a podcast wherever you get fine podcasts, a YouTube series, and even as an actual book in hardcover, softcover, and Kindle editions on Amazon. Links for all of these, including my social media, can be found at my website, www.funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it, as these things really do help other people find the show. So grab your bass, tune up, and let's hit the road. Welcome to Am I Famous Yet? I'm Ivan, and this is chapter 41 called Midnight Train to NYC. On January 20th, 2009, Sam Moore got called to perform at an inaugural ball for President Obama thrown by the Creative Coalition, a supposedly nonpartisan group of Hollywood stars turned political activists. It was to be an A-list bunch of at- attendees, including, but not limited to, Anne Hathaway, Susan Sarandon, Ron Howard, Spike Lee, Kerry Washington, Alfre Woodard, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Peter Sarsgaard, Wendy Malick, Matthew Modine, Alan Cumming, and Ellen Burstyn. And those are just the ones that I had heard of. Incidentally, though I performed for these folks, I didn't meet any of them over the course of the following events. I only know they were there having read the scant press accounts of the night that barely even acknowledged the musical performance, which was the centerpiece of the event. Press reports were scant because there was a bigger headlining, headliner in town that night. I don't know if you heard. Film director Barry Levinson made a documentary about the Creative Coalition and the involvement of, the Hollywood, of Hollywood in the election cycle that year called Pollywood. The inaugural ball features prominently in the film you can uh, see me on screen a couple of times if you don't blink. The mission we chose to accept that cold January day was to perform as the Sam Moore Band with a 13-piece combo and back up Sam's special guests for the evening, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers Elvis Costello and Mr. Sting. I was to be the music director, band contractor, arranger, and road manager, but at least I didn't get paid any extra money for wearing all of those hats, so that's cool. That was the good news. The bad news was that, owing to the historic event, Washington, D.C. was completely booked up that night. There were no accommodations to be had within a 100-mile radius. There was literally no room at the inn. We were therefore booked on a round-trip Amtrak ticket with a 3 a.m. return train to New York, not actually the midnight train. This fact wasn't enough to deter anyone from taking the gig, however. When we pulled into Washington Union Station around midday, the air in the city was electric. People who had never thought about attending an inauguration flocked to town. The Park Service estimates approximately 1.8 million people decided to witness history that day. The place was super crowded and also locked down tighter than it had ever been before. The security was enormous. The parade route and the National Mall were cordoned off by a tightly controlled perimeter, more than likely with sharpshooters on every rooftop. We noticed upon arrival that there was no one there to pick us up and transport us from the train station to the venue. Trying to be resourceful, a quick check on Google Maps revealed that the concert hall was only a little under a mile away. 
I suggested to the band that we walk. They all agreed. We had a very pleasant stroll through ebullient crowds and thousands of vendors selling bootleg swag. I think we each bought at least one souvenir t-shirt. It was that kind of occasion. Unfortunately, the most direct route suggested by Google Maps wasn't available to us because of the security perimeter. We had to circumnavigate the roadblocks and find our way to the theater by trial and error. The route we took was certainly longer, but it was still fun just to be in the festive atmosphere of it all, even though we were hand carrying our instruments the entire way. For singers, this wasn't a problem. For the baritone sax and trombone players, it was a little more arduous. Finally, we rounded a corner and saw an entrance to the theater. Yet we were still about 100 yards away and facing yet another roadblock. The officer manning the post asked us for our credentials. We had none. We had been provided with none. It had never occurred to us to ask for any. We were musicians on a mission from God. We don't need no stinking badges. That is, except for this day, which was the most secured event in the nation's history, it was a problem. The officer sighed and pointed the way to the next checkpoint, which was at the parking lot gate for the theater. Apparently, we weren't the first people that day to have the same problem. Our musical army was allowed to advance to the next barricade. Upon arrival at this blockade, the officer asked us again for our credentials. We explained again that we didn't have any, but that we were performing for the event in the hall that evening. We were met with another heavy sigh from law enforcement and told to proceed to the stage door of the theater for the next checkpoint. At the stage door, we were once again asked for our credentials. But this time it wasn't by a DC city cop or a Virginia state trooper on temporary assignment. This time it was the secret service. These guys were not amused by our plight and not about to entertain our sad story without some verification. We were told to stand to the side of the hallway that contained airport style metal detectors and wait while people were called. The secret service detail all looked huge and were undoubtedly packing lethal force. While we were waiting to learn our fate, we got to watch them prosecute their duties. A push cart full of food was being brought in by the caterers. We watched a gargantuan agent the size of a side of beef diligently search through the salads. These guys were not messing around, nor were they to be trifled with. We kept our mouths shut and waited. As we were waiting, an old Berkeley classmate of mine coincidentally walked in. My pal Tarek Ikoni lives in Los Angeles and is music director for Josh Groban. It was a happy reunion, but an unlikely place to meet. Tarek said that he was playing with Josh there that night. That's great, I thought. I had no idea we were on the same bill. Then we heard a band on stage sound checking. They played a Smokey Robinson song that we loved. Then they played another Smokey Robinson song. Then another Smokey Robinson song. Clearly the artist sound checking at that moment was Smokey Robinson. The, my thoughts in rapid succession were, wow, what an incredible night of music. And hey, we're not on the same show with Smokey Robinson or Josh Groban. We're in the wrong place. We were in the wrong place. There were so many full-fledged production shows in Washington that night that we had mistakenly seen all the trucks parked outside and assumed that that was our gig. Generally, we had been successful with this game. Whenever you pull into a new town, you always look for evidence of a gig, a theater, PA speakers, outdoor staging, lighting rigs, and equipment trucks. This makes it easy to deduce where you need to be for work that day. After a further conference with the Secret Service, we determined that our gig was really two blocks away but again, we couldn't walk the two blocks directly because of the perimeter. So it was two blocks up, two blocks over, and two blocks back down again. 
When we finally arrived at the Harmon Center, our actual home for the evening, we were greeted at the front door by a very nice lady sitting behind a folding card table who said, name please. It instantly dawned on us, the president was not attending our function. It turned out that even with all the celebrity firepower in attendance, this was still an unofficial inaugural function. Once finally on the correct site, another potential hardship we faced was that we only had a partial list of songs that our special guests were to perform and no specific keys in which to play them. The reasons for this are a little complicated. Typically, band managers tightly control access to their artists. It's part of their job to protect their clients from the daily onslaught of people from all levels of the industry and fans in general who crave direct access to the artists. Managers will communicate with other managers but are loath to hand off direct access to their bass players, for instance. This is understandable. On more than one occasion, I have demonstrated that I cannot and should not be trusted to fully and accurately represent the interests of my employer when speaking on my own to other rock stars. This is why I'm not a manager, I suppose. There's also a general lack of understanding that business people seem to have about the mechanics of what it takes to get a 13-piece ensemble performing at the highest level. There are a lot of moving parts involved. This made my job as music arranger for the evening quite difficult. I felt like I was literally herding cats. I've heard a saying that, it's, that seems to apply to situations like this, quote, I'm solving problems that you don't know you have in ways you can't understand, end quote. For example, Elvis Costello and the Attractions famously covered a Sam and Dave song in 1980 called I Can't Stand Up for Falling Down. It was the lead track on their album Get Happy. Sam and Dave originally recorded the song in 1967 in the key of F as a 12-8 ballad. The Attractions recorded it in the key of C as an up-tempo punkish rocker. The two versions are in no way uh, compatible for a live medley. They're two quite different readings of the song. I was told that we would perform it in Sam and Dave style first with Elvis as a duet partner, then immediately again, but Elvis Costello style. I was also told by management that we were to keep Elvis's version in Sam's key since Elvis was our guest. This would have gone very badly for Elvis. I didn't want to see that happen because ironically, the first time I had heard that song growing up was from Elvis, not from Sam. As a side note, I had a similar experience the first time hearing the song I Thank You from ZZ Top instead of from Sam and Dave. What can I say? I grew up in the burbs, but I quickly learned the error of my ways and got educated. We had a great horn section in our band that Elvis Costello didn't have on his version, which was recorded with just a rock quartet. I wanted to use our uptown horns since we had them that night with the help of baritone sax player Dan Cipriani, who had some music notation software on his laptop, I finished an Otis Redding style horn arrangement for Elvis's version of I Can't Stand Up on the train on the way to DC in Elvis's key of C. This was me opting not to follow orders and potentially jeopardizing my job in the process. My plan was to pull Elvis aside at rehearsal and tell him that when we got to the Attractions version of the song, that he was to absolutely take the helm. Sam wouldn't know Elvis's arrangement. It would be in the wrong key for Sam. It was imperative that Elvis step up. It was a foolproof plan no one would ever know. But Elvis never came to rehearsal. I never got a chance to meet him before, during, or after the show. The only person I had access to was Milo, his road manager. 
I had the discussion with Milo that I had intended for Elvis. I tried to urge him to impart all of this information to his boss so that when we were on stage it would, wouldn't all go pear-shaped. I had no way of knowing that the information got successfully passed along until we stormed into the song during the actual show. Elvis took the mic and sang lead like a boss. It was a great moment. I heaved a huge sigh of relief. I was excited to play with Elvis Costello, a childhood hero of mine. I have audience photos and camera phone clips from the evening that I found online. Our band is even featured in the Barry Levinson documentary backing him, but I never got to meet Elvis. Mr. Sting, however, did come to rehearsal. As I wrote earlier, we had worked with him and Sam before. We had been told that we were backing him only for the song Every Breath You Take and that he was going to perform the song Message in a Bottle solo as he famously had at the Secret Policeman's Other Ball in 1981. Fine. I was a little heartbroken about that because I had played Message at my first ever high school talent show, my first time on stage as a musician, but I was happy to get to play with him at all. I did something else in preparation for Mr. Sting's set that I knew would be me basically taking my life into my own hands again. I wrote a very gentle horn arrangement for every breath you take. Nothing grandstanding or showy, just a way to include these instruments in the performance. I knew it was potentially bad form to rewrite rock and roll history without permission when backing the original artist and songwriter. I decided to roll the dice anyway. It was Sam's band after all, with Mr. Sting as a special guest. In preparation, I told the horn players that they were not to mention under any circumstances that they had a chart for every breath. I further told them not to be standing at their microphones looking like they were ready to play on the song. I asked them to say and do nothing to betray the fact that they were about to chime in. When we played the song in rehearsal with Mr. Sting, at the first bridge, the horns just gently came in with a whole note voicing that I had written out for them. The instant the first molecule of spit hit a trumpet valve, his head shot around like lightning toward the horn players. My entire career flashed before my eyes, but he was smiling. I heaved another sigh of relief. There would be many such sighs over the course of that evening. He liked the horn arrangement and went on to use it at least two other occasions that I know of for sure. He was so pleased at how every breath went that I decided to ask him if he wanted us to also to back him on message in a bottle. He asked, do you know it? In C sharp? I confirmed. Of course I knew it. It was one of the first songs I had ever learned to play. Right, he said, but quickly added to our amazing drummer, Tony Lewis, but I don't want a Stuart Copeland type of thing. Mr. Sting had just finished the police reunion tour the year before and had had enough of that style of drumming, apparently. No worries. We got you, man. We gave him the soul version. It was a life full circle moment for me. 27 years after my high school debut performance, I was getting to play Message in a Bottle again, this time on stage with the man himself. Furthermore, it turned out, Mr. Sting was planning to perform his song, Brand New Day, solo that night with a pre-recorded backing track. Once again, I offered our services to accompany him and the track, and once again, he accepted. However, this was going to require that his aide-de-camp email me a copy of the track which I would, I would then have to transcribe off of my phone backstage with a pencil. No pressure. I did just that. I found a production office with a Xerox machine and distributed copies, copies to the band while everyone else was enjoying a dinner break. 
no rest for the bass player. At the show that evening, Sam and the band were on fire. Our special guests were stellar. The audience was enraptured by the performance and giddy from the day's political events. It was a career high, once in a lifetime event. At the end of the night, we were all spent, but exhilarated. I had complained earlier in the day to the organizers that we hadn't been met at the train station on our arrival. I was assured that three town cars had been arranged to get us back in time for our overnight train to New York. At the end of the night, the stars, their managers, and all the organizers disappeared into whatever after parties they went to. We exited the theater to find only two town cars waiting, certainly not three. Uh, the drivers informed us that it would be $50 in cash for each car for a one-mile ride back to the train station. Inaugural price gouging was in full effect. Of course, nobody from the event had bothered to prepay our transportation. I knew enough from dealing with these situations in the past that getting reimbursed for expenses like that that hadn't been explicitly agreed upon beforehand was nearly impossible. I wasn't willing to lay out the cash myself and was unwilling to ask the band to pay for it, so I suggested once again that we walk. It was just a final little F.U. The band had performed miraculously under difficult circumstances and made our bosses comfortable enough to be able to sing their hearts out. It was one of the greatest nights of our lives, yet we still had to walk a mile back to the train station at 1 a.m. in freezing 20-degree weather, drenched with sweat, and hand-carrying our instruments. We made our 3 a.m. train with time to spare. The entire band was sound asleep as soon as we pulled out of the station bound for our 6 a.m. arrival back in New York City. Everyone that is, except for me. I was so wound up from the adrenaline and stress of the day that I didn't, couldn't sleep a wink the entire ride. I stared out the window at the nighttime rushing by and tried to process what had just happened to us. All in all, we had many more successes than failures on this grand adventure. My sole regret was not being able to get a photo with Elvis Costello on the suspicious occasion of our first working together. I already had a photo with Mr. Sting from a previous gig. Ten years later, Blondie played at Forest Hill Stadium, about four blocks from my apartment in Queens. I have some really great friends in that band. Every time I'm near a show of theirs, I like to try to see if I can sneak in and get backstage without any valid credentials. Usually I have good luck but I knew the security at Forest Hill Stadium might be a little tough. My strategy was to go around soundcheck time in the afternoon and to hang any random couple of laminated passes from unrelated past gigs around my neck so it would look like maybe I should be there. It worked. I walked through the vendor's gate and right up on stage during Blondie's soundcheck. When I accomplished these security breaches, my pal Tommy Kessler, who plays guitar for the band, always says to me, how did you get back here? I just walked in, man. Once inside, Tommy is always kind enough to get me an official laminate for the show so I can stay back there for the rest of the evening without worry. I even got to enjoy the backstage catering that day, which was very kind of them. In the catering tent, I noticed a gentleman standing near the ice cream freezer. After a brief internal pep talk, I decided to approach him and introduce myself. Blondie's co-headliner for the evening was Elvis Costello. I reminded him of our previous adventure in Washington, D.C., he remembered. Ten short years later, I finally got to take a photo with him.